I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, please. Second Corinthians chapter 5. And uh, why don't you go ahead and turn your Bibles to the Old Testament, uh, Isaiah 54, at the same time. Then you'll be able to get there quickly when we, when we go there. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Paul is, uh, is talking in the, sec- in the fourth and the fifth chapters of Second uh, Corinthians about uh, spiritual things, uh, the recreated spirit and so forth. Uh, he talks about man is uh, the fact that man is a spirit being. Chapter 5, verse 1, we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, meaning the body, were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He's talking about man being an eternal spirit. Then he goes down and he talks uh, some further, uh, makes some further points about that. And then in verse 17, he's talking about what happens to us when we make Jesus the Lord of our lives, the born again experience. He says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. Now we've talked about this before and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but we know the old things that pass away have to be spiritual things because you don't look any differently after you get saved than before you get saved. Mental things, things of the soul don't change when you get saved. As a matter of fact, some of those things may be, even be enhanced. But the part that's changed, the part that uh, that's made new, uh, the new species of being, one translation says that I particularly like that, a new species of being. If any man being in Christ, he's a new species of being, a brand new creation, something that was never before, never before existed before Jesus was raised from the dead. It says that, uh, that old things have passed away. Those have to be spiritual things. And the all things that become new have to be spiritual things. Now, it tells us, it goes on and expands a little bit in verse 21. And notice what happens when you're made, um, uh, when you're made a new creature in Christ Jesus, when you're born again, he explains a little further. He says, for he, speaking of God, has made him, speaking of Jesus, to be sin for us. That's what took place, and that's what makes you and I uh, a candidate for or enables us to be a new species of being, a new creature or creation in Christ Jesus. For God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin. That or so that, here's the purpose that God made Jesus to be sin. Notice it doesn't say he laid sin on him. It said Jesus was made to be sin. Now, if you look up this word made, you'll find out it means a change in nature. It means to become something. Jesus became sin. Now, the reason that I point that out is because so often, and, and this is the way it was explained in the church that I grew up in, and, and Southern Baptist Church, we were big on getting born again, big on getting other people born again. But the whole idea of being born again carried with it, at least for me, maybe I wasn't listening well, but at least for me, it was uh, implied, if never really stated, and, and uh, as a matter of fact, it was stated. But the, uh, the idea that I came away with is that God laid sin upon Jesus so that he could lay righteousness on me. But that kept me in a place of condemnation because that gave me the idea that I'm not really righteous. God's just saying I am. Now, maybe I was too young and, and not smart enough to figure out what they were really trying to say, but that's the way I grew up. I grew up with the idea that, yeah, God says I'm righteous, but I know I'm really not. And the reason I know I'm really not is because I see the things that I'm doing in my life that are wrong. But that's not what the Scripture says. You can't find that anywhere in the Scripture, anywhere in the Bible. There's no Scripture that identifies it that way. Even if the words uh, laid upon are used, that's not what they mean. It literally means what it says here. God made Jesus to be sin. Jesus became sin. You see that process beginning in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's what he's sweating great drops of blood over. Jesus is not shying away from a few hours of of pain. 
He's not shying away from the beating that he's going to take because the Bible says he endured all these things because of the eternal weight of glory that was prepared for him. He's not shying away from the physical aspect of it. He's not even shying away from the crucifixion and the, the things that are going to happen. As a matter of fact, Jesus hung on the cross a shorter time than the two thieves on either side of him. So it wasn't like Jesus died a death on the cross that was greater than anything anybody else had ever experienced. That's not what he's shying away from. He's shying away from becoming sin. And when he's on the cross, his last words are, are, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Next to the last words. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And then he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. In other words, it's all up to you. I'm without strength. I can't do anything up at this point. But for then, Jesus could have done something. Jesus said himself that he lays his life down, then no man takes it from him. In other words, Jesus could have walked away from the cross. He could have called 10,000 angels, as the song says that we used to sing in the Baptist church. He could have called 10,000 angels to take him down from the cross, but he didn't. He had the ability until he was made sin. And then once he was made sin, he says, Father, I'm in your hands now. This is all you're doing. Why? Because God made Jesus to be sin. Jesus didn't make himself sin. God made him to be sin. That's why in the Old Testament, Moses was commanded to hold a serpent of brass on a pole to deliver the people. For the redemption of the people, when the serpents came in the, the camp in the midst of the congregation and a lot of people were dying, Moses went to the Lord and said, okay, what do I do about this? This is a problem. People murmured, and that's what opened the door to the snakes coming in. Now, how do we fix this? And the Lord said, make a serpent of brass. Why a serpent? If it's going to be a type of Jesus, and Jesus said it was, Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man has to be lifted up from the earth. Talking about his crucifixion. Why did Jesus refer back to, and why did God give instruction for a serpent of brass to be on a pole? Would it make more sense to make a make a, a, an image of a lamb? I mean, if it's going to be Jesus, Jesus is the Lamb of God, wouldn't it make more sense to have a lamb on the pole? No, because when Jesus was hanging on the cross, he wasn't the Lamb of God. He became sin. He became sin. His nature changed from righteousness to sin. Now, why did that happen? God said it was for you. For he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin for us. Jesus became sin. That or so that we might be made. Same word made. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, the same way his nature on the cross went from righteousness to sin, your nature, upon making Jesus the Lord of your life, went from sin to righteousness. See, folks, your righteousness can only be in the same parallel, substitutionary manner, nature, condition that Jesus was made to be sin. God couldn't just wink at it and say, well, we'll call Jesus sin over there and really make you righteous. Nope. That's not how it worked. Now, turn back with me to Isaiah 54. Here's what Isaiah prophesied about these events. Isaiah 54 Let's start reading in, uh, well, let's just pick it up in verse 14. We'll read down through verse 17. It says, in righteousness shalt thou be established. The word established means to set upright. It means to be firmly fixed. In other words, an immovable object is one that is established. He said, in righteousness thou shalt be established. You know why so many Christians are up and down, in and out, back and forth? Because they don't know who they are with God. They haven't come to an understanding of being made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. They might be like I was for so many years of my life, thinking that God's calling me righteous, but thinking otherwise, knowing otherwise about myself. 
It was only when I accepted, wait a minute, Jesus was made sin so that I was made righteous. I may not look righteous. I may not act righteous. I may not feel righteous, but the Bible says I'm righteous. When I began to accept that and confess that and, and begin to stand upon that truth, that's when things changed for me. That's when I got the power of God to overcome the sin that I kept falling over for years and years and years before. If you're waiting until you feel like you can overcome sin, you'll never get there. But you start confessing that you're righteous in the face of sin, you'll gain strength to overcome it. In other words, you'll live up to who you say you are because you're saying what the Bible says about you. So he says, in righteousness shalt thou be established. John Lake called this. He said it this way. He said, this is the strong man's way to God. This is the strong man's way to God. Not everybody wants a strong way to God. A lot of people would rather, a lot of people in the church would rather just sit back and, and feel sorry for themselves and just say, well, whatever God wants, let it be. Well, folks, the Bible tells you what God wants. He wants you to live up to the righteousness of, that you've been made by the blood of Jesus. That's what he wants. But not everybody's going to be willing to do that. I decided I was going to. Now you get criticized. So if that means something to you, just get ready. Personally, that's never bothered me much. I don't know if that's a personality thing or, or just what, but that doesn't affect me too much. But it'll happen. Because people that aren't willing to go the, the, through the strong man's way to God are not going to be happy that somebody else does. Makes them look bad. Notice what God's plan was. God prophesied, In righteousness shalt thou be established. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Folks, if there's any area of your life that you are not established, you are not firmly fixed, you are not victorious, it's because you don't understand the reality of righteousness in and the effect upon the, your life in that area. He said, in righteousness thou shalt be established. He didn't say in righteousness you'll feel better. He didn't say in righteousness I'll make a way to heaven for you. He said, in righteousness thou shalt be established. Again, established means firmly fixed. It means something that nobody else can tear down. It means something that stands against any and every onslaught. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear. And from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Now, you know as well as I do that Israel had enemies, and, and God's talking about delivering them from the enemies, Canaanites, Hittites, Jebusites, and so forth, Philistines and, and others, Assyrians, Babylonians, and, and, and a whole bunch of hosts of enemies. You and I don't have enemies as far as nations are concerned like they did. Our enemies are simply those that are influenced by the devil, and the enemy is our enemy really is the devil. And so if you think about the oppression, don't think about what men bring against you. Think about what the devil tries to do. In other words, he's saying you'll be far from the oppression of the enemy. You'll be far from the oppression of the devil. Why? Because you're established in righteousness and that establishment in righteousness, knowing who you are in Christ Jesus, that right standing before God keeps you from being afraid. If you don't fear, you can't be oppressed. That's why the devil doesn't want to know, doesn't want you to know who you are in Christ Jesus. Because you find out who you are in Christ, you find out what righteous, being made righteous by the blood of Jesus really means. He didn't have a foothold anymore. He says you will be far from terror. 
Now, terror is the things that the enemy is either threatening you with or trying to bring against you. He said, because it won't come nigh you. Won't even come near. Why? Because you're established in righteousness. Oh, but Pastor Mike, the devil's doing a lot of things in my life. That must mean you're not established in righteousness the way that you think, the way you need to be. And by that, I don't mean something else needs to be done on God's end. That means you coming to an understanding of what you already have. He said, in righteousness, thou shalt be established. The answer to anything and everything the enemy ever brings against you is to know that you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Now, that's not the end of the story. You still have to believe the word. You still have to confess the word and operate in faith. But you have a foundation of who you are in Christ that changes everything. Smith Wigglesworth used to say this. He said that when you understand who you are in Christ, it brings an audacity of spirit to you. And that's just the way he was. Man, he'd get up there and he'd spit in the devil's eye. He'd challenge the devil in front of everybody. He'd take somebody that was in a, in a hopelessly uh, condition of sickness or disease. As far as the crowd was concerned, there's nothing can be done for this person. And he'd challenge the devil. He'd say, you don't think there's any possibility that this guy's not going to get saved or get healed tonight, do you? He'd challenge the devil. He had a boldness of spirit about him that came by his testimony that came because he found out who he was in Christ Jesus. He said, I found out that the divine life of God brings divine power. In righteousness shalt thou be established. Thou shalt be far from oppression, for thou shalt not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near thee. Behold, they shall surely gather together, but not by me. Oppression is still still going to be out there. Terror is still going to be out there, but it won't come near me. Whosoever shall gather together against thee shall fall for thy sake. Again, he's talking about Israel and their enemies. But that would include for us the principle of anything that the devil tries to raise up against us. That would include sickness. Verse 16, behold, I have created the smith that blows the coals in the fire and that brings forth an instrument for his work, and I have created the waster to destroy. This is one of those scriptures that uh, uh, that I heard growing up where it says, see, God makes everything. God even made the devil to destroy people. Well, folks, if God made the devil for the purpose of destroying people, that would make God a destroyer, a secondhand destroyer. That can't be right. Let me read this to you from the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek translation uh, from the Hebrew. It was the Bible of Jesus' day. Let me read verse 16 to you from, from uh, Brenton's Septuagint. It says, Behold, I have created thee, not as the coppersmith blowing coals and bringing out a vessel fit for work, but I have created thee not for ruin that I should destroy thee. That throws a little different light on it, doesn't it? See, God's talking about being the deliverer in the previous verses. In righteousness, you'll be established. Oppression won't come near you. Terror won't come near you. Those that gather against you will run away because of my sakes. And he says, I didn't create you to destroy you. That's what verse 16 means. Verse 17, no weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment, thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage. Please notice this last phrase. This is the heritage, meaning from verse 14 all the way down. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Which means it's not of you. Which means your righteousness has nothing to do with what you do or don't do other than making Jesus the Lord of your life. That means your righteousness is not affected by you falling to temptation. 
That means your righteousness is established and set and fixed forever, eternal forever, whether you ever live up to it or not. That sounds almost blasphemous, doesn't it? We've been religiously brainwashed instead of New Testament taught. And to say something like that, the idea of something like that, that somebody living in sin could be called righteous, just sounds almost blasphemous. But the blood of Jesus makes you righteous. Your righteousness, that is the righteousness that comes unto us because of the the shed blood of Jesus, the blood of the Son of God cannot be hindered, cannot be undone by someone's choice to live in sin. Now, granted, they won't be manifesting righteousness in their life, but that doesn't change the fact that Jesus' blood made them righteous. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Paul spends a lot of time in chapter 7 talking about his own struggles at the time in his life where he was struggling, and it wasn't at the time that he wrote this. This was uh, He's talking about himself and his experience many years before when he was just finding out who he was in Christ. It's a process for him just like it is for the rest of us. And so he goes in chapter 7 and starts talking about my body wants to do the wrong thing, but I want to do the right thing from the inside. My spirit, the man that's in Christ, wants to do the right thing, but my body seems to be overpowering my spirit. Because the things that I want to do from my heart, from my spirit, that's not what I wind up doing. And the things that I don't want to do, that my body wants to do, those things wind up be the, being the things that, that take place in my life. And he concludes... Chapter 7 by saying, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Now, here's the same struggle that Paul, uh, that, that all of us have, every Christian has. Paul's experiencing it in himself. I guess a lot of people think that as soon as he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he never made a mistake ever again. If that's the case, then God owes me a road to Damascus experience. Because otherwise, he was better to Paul than he is to me. And if you haven't had the same Damascus Road experience where Jesus appeared and shined the light out of heaven against uh, upon you, I would assume that you'd feel the same way, wouldn't you? Because that's sure not the way it worked for me. I got saved and been struggling with sin ever since. But some people have the idea that, no, not Paul. He was perfect. Well, not according to his own testimony. Paul's testimony is, I had the same struggle in my flesh that you have in yours. That's why he could relate to the people and tell them how to get out of their struggle. So he concludes by saying, who's going to deliver me from the body of this death? Notice the last verse of chapter 7. Here's the answer. He said, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. In other words, he's saying, here's the struggle. The struggle is between my flesh and the real me, the man on the inside. Mind there is talking about his spirit. He's saying, this is my struggle. I've got to learn how to live from the inside. So chapter 8 starts off with the lack of condemnation. He said, here's what I've understood. Here's what I've come to realize about Jesus and his work. If Jesus is going to be the one to deliver me, what is Jesus going to do that he hasn't already done on the cross? Is Jesus going to have to come back to the cross for a little longer so that I can overcome this this, uh, temptation in my body? No, of course not. He's coming to the reality that what Jesus has already done is sufficient. So he says in chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now, everybody say now, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're reading from the King James, you'll see the last phrase, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. That is not adequately supported in the original transcripts. It's not there. 
The RSV and the NIV, I think, both make a note of that. I don't think they take it out of the verse, but they make a note that's not supported by the original transcripts. Now, the reason that the translators put it in chapter and in, in verse 1, where it's supposed to be in verse 4, and is in verse 4, they just doubled up. They pulled the phrase out in verse 4 and put it in verse 1 because what Paul is saying was beyond their comprehension. Paul is saying there is therefore now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, even if they're falling to the desires of their flesh like he was in chapter 7. Well, that goes against religious training, doesn't it? But that's exactly what he's saying. He's saying here's how Jesus delivers us. He has delivered us from all condemnation. Why? Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made, not going to make, not once I get my flesh straightened out, then it'll make. No, it says the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. From the law of sin and death. Now, I've got a responsibility. My responsibility is to live right so that that righteousness is fulfilled. That's what verse 4 is all about. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. He's not saying you're made more righteous by walking after the Spirit. He's saying that the righteousness you're already made is manifested when you walk according to the Spirit. But then notice, he goes down in verse 8, he says, So then they they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but you're not in the flesh. If so be that the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he's none of his. He's got to be talking about salvation, doesn't he? He's saying you're not in the flesh if you're saved. Why? Because the blood of Jesus made you righteous. Jesus, who has made sin for you, enabled God to make you righteous. Now, what is this righteousness supposed to do for us? Well, God prophesied through Isaiah that righteousness would be the establishing factor in our lives. In other words, the point of victory where no opposition of the enemy could take you under. That's what God said. God said his righteousness was yours, not your own righteousness is yours. Your righteousness is of him. So what is this supposed to do for us? Notice Paul talked about, and uh, we will, we'll skip down through uh, a lot of this, but pick up with me over in verse 31. Paul said, what shall we say to these things? If, the word if is literally the word since, since God before us, who can be against us? In other words, he's going to tell you what righteousness is supposed to do for you. Really, what righteousness has done for you, if you'll open your eyes to accept it. Here's what righteousness has done for us. Here's what being made the righteousness of God does for us. If Since God is for us, who can be against us? Well, why is that such a big deal? Because God that spared not his own son, but delivered up him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Paul is saying in one verse, God is on your side, and with Jesus everything you'll ever need is yours. Already. Because it was all wrapped up in the cross. In other words, here's what being made the righteousness of God really means. He's already given you freely all the things that you will need in life. You need healing? That was given to you in Jesus. You need financial help? That was given to you in Jesus. You need peace in your life? That was given to you in Jesus. You need deliverance in some way? That was given to you in Jesus. God doesn't have to give you something more. He's saying he has already given those things to you because he gave you his son. Remember that audacity of spirit I was talking about that Wigglesworth referred to? Notice how Paul says it. Paul says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Notice the statements Paul makes. 
he says, first of all, since God is for us, who can be against us? And then he explains why. And then he says, who's going to lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who's big enough to say that God's people aren't righteous? Who's big enough to try to mess with God's righteousness by trying to bring oppression? Where is the enemy that's big enough for that? That's what he's saying. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. The word justify means to make righteous. It's God that made you righteous. So who can lay a charge against you? You know how the Bible says the devil is the accuser of the brethren? Who do you think he accuses you to? Oh, well, the Bible talks about in the book of Job. Please get off the book of Job. I've never found one person yet that tried to use the book of Job to prove anything that knew anything about the book whatsoever. Nothing. Oh, but the Bible says that the sons of God came before to be presented before uh, God on one time and, and the devil was there. Folks, the devil does not have access to God. Even the youngest of baby Christians should know that. The Bible says very clearly that God threw him out of heaven. There was rebellion of the devil, and he took a third of the angels, and God cast him out of heaven. Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, verse 17, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. You know how lightning floats down from the sky and just barely lands on the earth? That's the way the devil came down. God threw him down with a giant smack. He's never been back to heaven since. So then if God's not accusing you to God, if the devil is not accusing you to God, who's the devil accusing you to? To yourself. That's where his accusations work. His accusations are you're not worthy. It might work for somebody else, but you know how you've messed up and so forth. The number one thing, the number one thing you have to deal with people when it comes to healing, getting them to receive their healing and believe God for their healing is you have to overcome the sense of unworthiness. In other words, if you can get them established in righteousness, healing is a snap. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. In other words, how can there be any condemnation against you when Jesus is at the right hand of God to prove that you're there is righteousness? That's the reason Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. The word where it says he intercedes for us, he makes intercession for us, that does not mean to pray. Jesus is not in heaven praying. If he was in heaven praying, he wouldn't be sitting down because the work wouldn't be finished. Well, then why does the Bible say Jesus is interceding for us at the right hand of God? It simply means he is seated at the right hand of God as the eternal proof that his blood was shed and that you've been made righteous. He's the proof for all time and all eternity, that you have been made righteous. So who is he that condemneth? It's Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us, therefore, from the love of Christ? There's a progression here. So since Jesus, since God's the one that justified us, since Jesus is the one that died for us, then who in the world is going to be able to separate us from the love of Christ? Jesus is at the right hand of God to prove that we're as much in him and as much united and in union with God the Father as Jesus is himself. 
Now, folks, I understand these are tough statements to swallow because they go completely against the grain of religious training. But I'm not trying to train you religiously. I'm just saying what the Bible says. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now it's interesting that he throws some uh, some examples of who. Shall tribulation or distress? I didn't know those were whose. I always thought those were what's. But there's a who behind them. And there's always a who behind them. And that who is the devil. So he's saying, how in the world is the devil going to be able to separate you from the love of Christ? Will his use of tribulation do it? How about bringing distress upon you? How about when he stirs up people to persecute you? What about when there's not enough food to eat or enough finances to see you through? What about if you don't have enough clothes to wear? What about if peril or sword comes along? What if somebody really comes out to try to kill you? Is that going to separate you from the love of Christ? Now, folks, the whole purpose that he's talking here is not how much trouble can the devil stir up, but since God's the one that justified us, since Jesus has freely given us all things, or God has freely given us all things through Jesus when he delivered up his son, since it's Jesus that's at the right hand of the Father as proof that we're righteous and proof that we're in him, what is the problem with these things? Here's the answer. Oh, I guess verse 36, he quotes the Old Testament. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Well, what about these things? Are these things going to be able to separate us from the love of God? Separate us from the victory that we have in Jesus Christ? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. Why? Because you've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Folks, I'm going to make a statement. That's going to seem like it's off the wall. You ready? The only thing. The only way that you can be defeated is if you give up on the reality of righteousness. That's it. Because the devil's not big enough to overcome the righteousness of God and all that belongs to you because you are righteous. Now, I want you to back up with me to a verse of scripture in chapter eight. He started off talking about no condemnation. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. He talks about we're more than conquerors through him that loved us and so forth. Notice what's right in the middle of that, talking about who we are in Christ and what belongs to us because we are made one with God, are made righteous through the blood of Jesus. Verse 11. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, who does the spirit of Jesus dwell in? All those that make Jesus their Lord and Savior. In other words, he's saying, but if you've been made righteous. If you've been made righteous, here's what belongs to you. If the spirit of him that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, if you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, if you've been made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken. That means to make alive. That means to heal your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells in you. Therefore, what is the foundation for healing under the new covenant? Righteousness. Now, folks, I'm not talking about the world. I'm not talking about Jesus' ministry of healing when he was here on the earth. 
Because nobody could be made righteous except for Jesus. Can I ask you another question? What kept Jesus free from sickness in his life? I'm not talking about what empowered him to heal the sick. We know that he said that the son can do nothing of himself. But what he does, the works that he did, and the, the words that he said, he got those from the Father. In other words, it was the anointing of God, the power of the Holy Ghost upon him that enabled him to heal the sick. But what kept him well? Was he well because he was the Son of God? Did he walk in health because he was the Son of God? Again, I'm not talking about ministering healing. I'm talking about his own personal life. He did live personally, you know. He had an, a personal life just like you and I have a personal life. What kept him well? What enabled him to walk in divine health for his 33 years here on the earth? Don't you think the devil would have wanted to make him sick? I've seen him destroy a lot of people's testimonies through sickness and disease. Don't you think he would have tried that with Jesus too? Or did Jesus get a pass because the devil knew he was the son of God? What kept Jesus in health for his time here on the earth? And I'm talking about his personal life. He was a righteous man. Jesus was a man without sin. He was in the original condition that God created Adam and Eve to be in the Garden of Eden. The only thing that could have opened the door to sin or sickness in Jesus' life would have been if he had failed to keep the law in some manner. But if he doesn't do that, if he keeps the law, if he operates as a sinless man here on the earth, if he does not fall to sin like Adam and Eve fell to sin when they were in the Garden of Eden, then it's impossible for the devil to put sickness on him. Or maybe a better way to say that, it would be impossible for the devil to enforce sickness upon him. The Bible says Jesus was tempted in all points like as we were, or as like as we are, so that would have to mean he was tempted with sickness too then, wouldn't it? But we don't see any record of it in his life, do we? Why not? Because he was a righteous man. He was a righteous man who was anointed of the Holy Ghost. But it wasn't the anointing of the Holy Ghost that kept him in divine health. It was righteousness that enabled him to walk in health. And this power of the Holy Ghost that came back upon him that was the power that raised him from the dead is the very same power of God that resides in you because you've been made righteous through the blood of Jesus. And as a result, the scripture is telling us here in Romans 8, 11, that that work of the Holy Ghost is a quickening work in your mortal body. But I don't understand, Pastor Mike, if we're, if we're, if the Holy Ghost quickens our mortal body, then why do Christians get sick? Because they don't know they're righteous. They don't know what belongs to them. Turn back with me to the Old Testament. Turn back with me to Exodus chapter 23. Is this making any sense to anybody? Exodus chapter 23. Notice, let's see. Uh, let's start reading in verse 20. This is God speaking to Israel. It says, Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies and an adversary unto mine adversaries. Now, the angel here is a type of Jesus who is the word. For us, he's the word. The Bible says he was the word made flesh. Our obedience is not to the voice of an angel. Our obedience is to the voice of God that we have in written form in the word, plus whatever else he speaks to your spirit. So we've got something better than they had. We've got an, uh, the, the voice of God on the inside. 
But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice, verse 22, and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies and an adversary unto thine adversaries. Notice that Jesus, uh, that the Bible is telling us that God works on our behalf when we hearken to the word of God. God works against the enemy. The only enemy we have is the devil. He works against our adversary, the devil, through the word, through the keeping of the word of God. Well, that's consistent throughout Scripture, isn't it? Sure. The word of God is the power of God into salvation. Rescue, deliver, safety, soundness, and healing. For mine angels shall go before thee and bring thee in unto the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites, or Hivites, I guess, the Jebusites, and I will cut them off. We don't have natural enemies like that. We've got one enemy, and that's the devil. But God said, obey the word, and I'll cut the enemy off. Thou shalt not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do after their works, but thou shalt utterly destroy them and quite break down their images. And you shall serve the Lord your God. Now, the word serve here means a variety of things. It means to work for. It means to worship. It means just what we would consider the word serve to mean. It means if we put God first in our lives, if we live our lives for God. So this is conditional, isn't it? And you shall serve the Lord your God. And he shall bless thy bread and thy water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of thee. What's he saying? He's saying righteousness, which for them was obedience to the word, produces a life free from sickness. Produces the blessings of God and a life free from sickness. Now, it's conditional. It doesn't belong just to anybody and everybody out there. It, in potential, it does. Everybody has the potential to walk in divine health, just like today. But not every Christian is going to accept the word and be a doer of the word. A lot of Christians are going to take where the Bible says that Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses and look at what their circumstance is, look at what their physical condition is instead of the word. They're not going to obey what the word says or how the word says to go about receiving. They're going to do their own thing. What does that mean that healing doesn't belong to them? No, it means that the word of God is the only way to receive the healing that God has provided. So it's your choice to take it, not God's. Same thing is back there. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he'll bless your bread and your water, and he'll take sickness away from the midst of you. Doesn't that sound like Romans 8, 12 or 8, 11 to you? The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead shall quicken your mortal bodies. He'll make you alive from the inside. Look with me over to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Folks, what I'm trying to get across to you is what being more than a conqueror really means. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let's start reading in verse 12. Wherefore, it shall come to pass, if you will hearken to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord thy God shall keep unto thee the covenant and the mercy which he swear unto thy fathers. And he will love thee and bless thee and multiply thee, and I will also bless the fruit of thy womb and the fruit of thy land, thy corn and thy wine and thine oil and the increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep and the land which he swear unto thy fathers to give thee. Thou shalt be blessed above all people. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your cattle. And the Lord, based on keeping or hearkening unto his commandments, And the Lord will take away from thee all sickness. Everybody say all. The Lord shall take away from thee all sickness based on obedience to the word. Will take away from thee all sickness and will put none of the evil diseases upon of Egypt, which thou knowest upon thee, but will lay them upon all them that hate thee. 
Again, this is not a causative verb that's used in the, in the Hebrew. It's a permissive verb. He'll say, but we'll allow these things upon all those that are disobedient to his word. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, those are the blessings of the Jews. No, they're not. These are the blessings of Abraham and Abraham's seed. And I'll refer you to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29, which says, And if you be Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So these two promises we just read, Exodus 23, 25, and Deuteronomy 7, 15, where God said, I'll take sickness away from the midst of you. Conditioned upon you hearkening to the word. Now, and, uh, that means conditioned upon you accepting that the word uh, means who it says you are. That means conditioned upon you accepting the righteousness that we were made by the blood of Jesus. See, folks, here's the reason that God wants you to keep his word. The word for the uh, end of the old covenant, at least the word was the means whereby God could establish them in righteousness. The word was their choice to accept God instead of the devil as their God. And as such, he could make the children of Israel his people and pour out his blessings upon them. It's different for us because now the only word that we're conditioned, the only word that our righteousness is conditioned upon is making Jesus the Lord of our lives. Once you make Jesus the Lord of your life, righteousness is yours. You are made righteous. Now, it's up to us to find out what that means. It's up to us to realize and accept who we are and who the Bible says we are as the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. But the point I want to get across to you folks is very simply this. You accept the fact that you've been made righteous. That puts you out of the devil's territory. We read it over pretty quick, but in Romans 8 uh, verse 2, it says, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free. That means it's already done, has made me free from the law of sin and death. Whether you and I ever find out about it or not, you've been made free from the law of sin and death, which includes all the works of the devil, which includes sickness. You've been made free from sickness. You're not going to be made free from sickness someday when God does some special work just for you. You've already been made free from the law of sin and death. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Galatians 3.13 says that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles. That includes this, that God would take all sickness away from the midst of you. Too many Christians are looking for the healing power of God to come from heaven and not recognize that because we're established in righteousness, the healing power of God lives in us. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, sickness has come against me. Okay, I get that. I'm not denying sickness. I'm not even denying the devil's right to put sickness on you. But here's what I am saying. I deny sickness right to remain. I know what it's like to be attacked with sickness and disease, just like you do. We've all experienced it. We all deal with it. We all have to handle it in our own way. Hopefully that way is according to the word of God. That's the only way of success that there is for healing. But I deny sickness right to stay in my body. Why? Because I've been made righteous. I'm just as righteous as Jesus was when Jesus resisted temptation to be sick just uh, with whatever he was tempted with. Again, if he was tempted in all points like as we are, he had to have been tempted with sickness. What do you think he did? 
He refused sickness in his body. Now I wish, I truly wish, that I was far enough along in these things to where I could stand up and say, okay, folks, here's how it works, here's my story, and you can do the same thing as me. But I'm growing just like you are. I'm growing and coming to the realization of who I am in Christ just like you are. And I know some things in my head that haven't yet come alive on the inside. But I also know this. I know these are things that the Holy Ghost is leading me to and into. Because this is the answer for so many people. That's why, in my opinion, just my opinion, you judge it for yourself. That's why, in my opinion, James says in chapter 5, is any sick among you? The implication is there shouldn't be. Well, what in the world would enable Christians, I don't know how big a crowd he's writing to, but we know how big the crowd is that finally read his writings over the years. What in the world would cause the Holy Spirit to inspire him to write in a way that implies there shouldn't be any sick people in the church? There's only one possible answer. There's only one possibility. And that is that being made the righteousness by the blood of Jesus, the righteousness of God through and by the blood of Jesus has set us free from all sickness and disease. God's original plan for his people was then and is now that as we serve him, you serve him by being obedient to the word. The word of the New Testament is the law of love. Paul says to the very same Romans, Romans chapter 13 and verse 10, he said, love works no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. We don't have 630 laws to keep like Israel did. We've got one law to keep, and that's the law of love. So if we serve God, if we're going to walk according to his word, that means we're going to have to walk in love. But the Bible says, if we serve God according to the law of love for the new covenant, God will take sickness away from the midst of us. He'll bless our bread and water, and he'll take sickness away from the midst of us. That means he will remove. You look up every one of those words and you'll find out it literally means he will remove sickness from within you. I remember a story Brother Hagin told. And I'll close with this. We're out of time. I remember a story Brother Hagin told about a lady that was uh, in a... um, well, he was in a church meeting, holding a church meeting, and there was a a, a lady that was, um, I don't think she went to that church, but, um, uh, well, maybe she did. Maybe she did go to this church. But anyway, she was, uh, she had gone to Bible school, and was she and her husband were ordained ministers themselves, but for whatever reason, they were out of the ministry. And so they were attending this church, and, and Brother Hagin had known them from some acquaintance before. And uh, so while they were there, um, she went to lunch with Brother Hagen and, and uh, Mom Hagen. And she said, Brother Hagen, I'm, I'm, you got me in a mess. And Brother Hagen made a joke with her and said, no, you were in a mess before I got here. I just, you know, the word just showed it up. And uh, so he said, uh, what was the problem? She said, well, you were teaching on love or said something in your sermon tonight about love. And you said, uh, love, uh, uh, he that hates his brother is a murderer. And he said, she said, you interjected, that means mother-in-law too. He that hates his mother-in-law is a murderer, and uh, no murderer has eternal life in them. He said, yeah, I plead guilty. I said that. And she said, uh, he said, why? What's your problem? She said, I hate my mother-in-law. And he said, well, then you're a murderer, and you don't have eternal life in you. 
Now, Brother Hagin's telling the story. He said, now, I knew she was saved. I knew she had the life of God on the inside of her. So, but I thought I'd play this out a little bit before I let her off the hook. And she started saying, but, but Brother Hagin, I've been to Bible school. I'm a graduate of Bible school. He said, I don't care. She said, but I was, I, I was born in the parsonage. My daddy was a preacher. He said, I don't care. You hate your mother-in-law. You don't have eternal life in you. And so he played it out. She said a couple other things. He said, none of that matters. You don't have eternal life if you hate your mother-in-law. And so she, she got her and, you know, kind of tied her up and with whatever she was saying or claiming to be. And then she said, well, brother Hagen, what am I going to do? And he said this. He said, I want you to look me in the eye and say to me, I hate my mother-in-law. And at the same time, I want you to check down on the inside and see what your spirit's trying to say. So she looked him in the eye and said, I hate my mother-in-law. Said it with conviction. And Brother Hagin said, now what's going on down on the inside of you? She said, something down there is scratching me. He said, that's the love of God on the inside of you that's trying to get your attention. She said, well, what am I supposed to do? He said, treat your mother-in-law like you love her because you really do from the inside. Treat her as you would if you really did love her because you do. Just because you don't feel something toward her doesn't mean that the love of God is not there for her. So a couple of days went by and, uh, uh, and, and she had some kind of party at the end of the week for, for some of the people, the pastor and whoever else and invited Brother Hagen and Miss Hagen over there and she had her, uh, family there. Her mother-in-law was there with some other family members and so forth. And she came up to Brother Hagen during, uh, during this, uh, get together or whatever it was. And, uh, she whispered in his ear. She said, Brother Hagen, she said, you're right. I don't hate my mother-in-law. They're lovely people. I've started walking in love toward them and it's just changed everything about them or everything about me and about my attitude toward them. Thank you so much. This has just made a a real difference in my life. Well, uh, they were, it was, uh, uh, this was, I guess would have been a Friday night of the week. Brother Hagen would always take Saturdays off, uh, you know, during week long crusades or extended week crusades type things. So they had the next day off and then, uh, and then Sunday, there was um, uh, a call that came in, or maybe it was a Monday. Maybe it was a Monday following. I don't know. Anyway, it was just a couple of days later. There was a call that came in from this lady. Now, they had a daughter who um, uh, who had, um, uh, I, I don't know what the condition was. There was something wrong with the legs, and the, the, the legs were uh, of this child were um, such that they had to have braces to keep them straight. If you took the braces off, the legs would, would flop out to the sides and, and go um, sideways in some way and um um so uh he had also this child also had seizures of some type and um and uh i'm getting a couple of stories mixed up there let me let me see if i get this right the the child would have seizures and there was something wrong with the legs i'm i'm not sure if the, the information i gave you about the legs was accurate or not but anyway this uh before the the service was starting the uh that evening the uh, a call came to the uh, the parsonage where Brother Hagen was staying with the pastor, and uh, they got word it was from this lady and said that my daughter is starting to go into one of these preliminary attacks. Apparently, there was something that would happen before she'd go into this real severe grand mal seizures, whatever they call them. And uh, so she said, would you come by and, and pray for my daughter on the way to the service? We were planning to come, but now we won't be able to come. And, and so can you stop by here on the way to the church? And so Brother Hagen asked the pastor about it. And he said, yeah, it's right on the way. We can go do that. And so he said, okay, let's go do that. So they're in the car on the way. And Brother Hagen said he heard a voice that sounded like it was somebody in the back seat. It was the Lord speaking. And, uh, and the Lord said, when you get there, don't lay hands on the child. Don't touch the child. 
and he gave him some further instruction. And Brother Hagin asked everybody in the car, did y'all hear that? It sounded to him like it was an audible voice. He thought it was, was somebody speaking in the car. At least it was, it was that forceful. But he said this. The Lord told him this. He said, when you get there, don't touch the child. Don't lay hands on the child. But say to the mother, tell the mother to say, devil, I'm walking in love. Take your hands off my child. And that was it. So they got there, and the, by this time, the, the child is in the middle of this big seizure and, and all this kind of stuff. They're comforting, trying to, trying to do whatever they can, and, and, and they're just helpless. And, uh, and Brother Hagin said, uh, when I, on our way over here, the Lord spoke to me and what seemed to me like an audible voice. And he said, don't touch the child. Don't lay hands on the child. Don't pray for the child. Tell the mother to say, devil, take your hands off my child. I'm walking in love. Now, folks, love is the commandment of the New Testament. And the Bible says that if we keep the commandments of God, he'll take sickness away from our midst. Well, Brother Hagin said, I hadn't even got the words out of my mouth. And she turns and looks at her daughter and points her finger at the air and says, Devil, you take your hands off my child. I'm walking in love in Jesus' name. And as Brother Hagin said, as fast as you can snap your fingers, that seizure stopped. That child was well. And the, the end result of that, the child never had another one of those seizures. Now, there was a time where they tried to come back, but the mother did exactly the same thing. Now, some people, Brother Hagin would tell that story. He'd say, now, some people hear that story and said, oh, isn't that wonderful? I wish it worked that way for me. I wish I was walking in love like that to work it, to work that well for me. But you got to remember just two or three days before that happened, she's hating her mother-in-law. See, what it means is this. Once we get ourselves in line with what the Bible says that we should do, the law of love, and it's not supposed to be a burdensome thing, folks. It's supposed to be something that we love because we're lovers. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our heart. If we've got some recurring problem or some real issue with somebody, then we need to get it straightened out just like she did with her mother-in-law. But if we keep the commandments of God that are given to us, which is the law of love, we've got a right to the same exact blessings that were given to Abraham's seed under the old covenant. You know what I think would be good? I think it'd be good for us to look the devil in the eye and say, take your hands off my body. I'm walking in love. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The more we meditate on who we are in Christ, the more we meditate on the fact that it's righteousness that establishes us and enables us to look the devil in the face and say, take your hands off and leave. That's when we start living up to who Jesus made us to be. Let's all stand. Let's just do that. Close your eyes. I don't want you looking around. Don't you be concerned about how other people look when they're saying it or how you think you might look when you're saying it. So close your eyes and repeat this after me. I am born again. Therefore, I am made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Because I'm righteous by Jesus' blood. I'm off limits to the devil. Jesus purchased my body and my spirit with his precious blood. Satan, take your hands off me in the name of Jesus. I refuse the right of sickness to remain in my flesh. My body belongs to God. 
Jesus paid for it. And I've willingly given it over to Him as Lord and Savior. Take your hands off my body in Jesus' name. Sickness, go in Jesus' name. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for quickening my mortal body. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Folks, I wish I could get it across to you. I don't feel like I've really done a very good job about it. I don't know. I hope that's just my feelings and that's not really the truth. But the reality is this. When we come to the realization, and I'm not sure I realize it the way, I certainly don't realize it the way I want to realize it. But when we come to the realization that God has made you a new creature, a new species of being by making you his righteousness, not your own, but now you are made his righteousness just as much as Adam was made part of his spirit when he breathed into him in the Garden of Geth- uh, Garden of, he wasn't in the Garden of Gethsemane, was he? In the Garden of Eden. You are just as much united with God. You have just as much the life of God as when Adam had the breath of God breathed into him. When you realize what that means, when you realize how far that brings us above the enemy, when we realize how much greater the life of God is in us than the law of the spirit and the law of the uh, of sin and death that's operating here in the earth, the nature of the enemy, then we become supermen and women. Then we live up to who God destined us to be. In righteousness you shall be established. Oppression won't come near you because you won't be afraid. Terror won't have any part in you because it won't even come close. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And your righteousness is of God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a wonderful thing it is to see the truth of your word. Father, even though we mentally assent to this, open our eyes, our spiritual eyes to see it clearly. Cause us to realize who we are in Christ. Help us to walk in that boldness that comes from knowing that we've been created far above all the work of the enemy. Raised to be seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Blessed with all spiritual blessings. And that the devil has no part in us. Thank you, Father, that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has already set us free from the law of sin and death. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen.